So, Father, we do thank you for, uh, thank you for humor. Uh, actually, you created that. And uh, every good and perfect gift comes down. It comes from you. And we, we acknowledge that. We get, we, get, uh, we get stressed and we get frazzled and the pressure and all that stuff. But it's good to let off a little steam now and then. It's, it's good to just uh, have a good laugh from time to time and enjoy life. We want to thank you for the good things you've done. We want to thank you for uh, the favor you have brought into each of our lives. We could sit down tonight and take a half hour and just write out the good things you have done for us. Uh, along with that comes hard things. And we could write out the hard things that we're dealing with. And we could write out the challenges. And we could write out the, the concerns and the things that... Uh, Cause us anxiety. We thank you that you are sovereign over both the good and the difficult. And you use those in our lives, just like a, an accelerator and just like a brake. We couldn't handle, we couldn't handle just a steady stream of blessing. We, we couldn't take it. Our, our hearts couldn't handle it. It, it, would, it would divert us from you. Uh, and, and, and you know our hearts, and you know how to uh, hand out uh, your favor, and, and even the hardships that come our way. We, we believe you're sovereign over all those things. And you know precisely what we need to keep us on course. Um, sometimes as fathers, we have uh, spoiled our children. You don't do that. You know when we need some discipline, and you know when we need encouragement. And uh, we don't always understand or agree with what you do with us. But we do know this, what you do is right, and what you do is just. You can't do it any other way. That's who you are. It's our job to learn to uh, bow before you and to bend the knee and to accept what you have brought our way and ask how we can be taught. We need to keep our hearts, Lord, soft before you. Not hard, but soft and tender and malleable so you can direct our steps. I thank you for these guys that are here. That's why we're here. We want to hear from you. We ask that you will uh, uh, make, make the scriptures tonight that we look at that are particularly applicable to us, underline them for us so we can't miss it. You be the teacher. For, for the areas of our lives, Lord, maybe that we don't even realize we need to hear from you about. We don't want to waste this time. We ask that you would make it significant for each guy. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're old enough, you'd remember a book that was out, kind of a fun book. <clears throat> Probably, i got to think about this, almost 30 years ago now. A book called out, came out called uh, Real Men Don't Eat Quiche. And it, had a, it was just a book full of saints, just kind of nonsense saints. But they were, they were kind of fun. R real men don't eat quiche. Back then, quiche was a relatively new thing. But real men don't eat quiche. Uh, real, men don't, uh, uh, real men don't floss. And they spend uh, thousands upon thousands of dollars when they're, when they're in their 50s because they don't. Um, Here's another one. Real men, I like this. Real men don't call for a fair catch. Not real men. Real men are stupid. They just say, come on and hit me full circle. You know, it was, just, it was just funny stuff like that. Here's something about real men that I think is true. Every real man at some point in his life plateaus. And we don't like that, but it happens. Every real man at some point in his life is going to hit a plateau. Every real man is going to hit a point in his life where he doesn't feel like he's progressing. Every real man is going to hit a time in his life where he doesn't feel like he's doing anything except maintaining. And it drives us nuts. We're doing this study, this series called Snapshots of Stupid. And it's only the second week, and I'm already, and I had a list when I started of guys that was going to study their lives, and some have already dropped off, and I put other names in, and 
I've had some conversation with guys and some emails, and I'm, I'm restructuring this as we go along. Uh, tonight is one I hadn't planned on doing, but I'm going to do it. And it's, uh, it, it may be one of the most well-known acts of stupidity by a godly man in, in the Scriptures, and it would be David's sin with Bathsheba. Now, here's a guy who is described in Scripture as a man after God's own heart. Yet he did one of the most stupid things that you'll ever see anywhere in these biographies that you find in the Scriptures. And the question is, how did it happen? Now, again, we, we got to say this. When we're talking about snapshots of stupid, we've all done stupid. We'll do it again. It, we, we do things that stun us, that shock us. By now, we should know better. And, and we will make errors, and we will make mistakes. So we are not uh, doing this study uh, from up on high, looking down on all these stupid men. Hey, let me tell you, there's some great men in here. Uh, sometimes good men do dumb things. And we all have a history of that. We, we all have our own catalogs. We all have our are things that we've done, and every time we think about something in particular, we just, gosh, how could I have been so stupid? How could I have missed that? We've all got our stories. But we're not doing this from a condescending view. We're doing it from the view of guys that uh, have all had our own experiences. But here's the deal. When we come to Christ, we bring our sin, and we bring our failures, and we bring our foolishness, so often it's all wrapped up in sin, and we bring that to the Lord. Now, here's what the Lord does. When we come to him with, uh, with, with hearts of, of remorse and repentance, he buries them in the deepest part of the sea. Psalm 103 says he takes our sin, and he, he removes it from us as far as the east is from the west. That's the great news about the gospel. There's forgiveness. And God not only forgives our sin, but God forgets our sin. There's nothing more liberating in the world than that. So, so what the enemy wants to do is he wants me to revisit my sins and my stupidity. He'll bring them up. He'll throw them up on my face. But because of what Christ has done, we don't have to go back there. We don't have to revisit. We don't have to linger. Paul said, forgetting what lies behind, I press forward. So our view in this study, these snapshots of stupid, we've all been there. But here's the deal. We're trying to learn from these men so that as we are in this day and tomorrow and next week, that we can learn some things to minimize the poor choices that will be before us. We can make good choices. We can make poor choices. Sometimes we get stupid just by engaging our mouths before we engage our, our brains. So... As we're maturing in Christ, we're trying to learn. That's the purpose of this study. So tonight we're in 2 Samuel chapter 11. As we look at David and the grievous situation that happened to him. Now here's the thing about David. We're in 2 Samuel 11. But when you read 2 Samuel and, the, and, and all that was going on in David's life, up until now, up until this deal with Bathsheba, he has been on a roll. It was F.B. Meyer who made this observation about David's life. He wrote the following. In the first 10 chapters of 2 Samuel, David could do no wrong. He is never defeated in battle. He is never wrong in his judgment. He begins his reign in prayer and continues in faith. Enemies are subdued, the nation is unified, the capital is secured, and the boundary extends from 6,000 to 60,000 square miles, all in the first 10 chapters of 2 Samuel. He's hitting on all cylinders. Everything this guy touches is turning to gold. The hand of God is upon him. And then comes 2 Samuel 11. One of, the, one, of the, one of the great uh, falls 
in, in, in all of Scripture, and it's heartbreaking to see what occurred. So if I can get to 2 Samuel, we'll read it and see what we find here. 2 Samuel 11. Now, remember, he's been on a roll, okay? Never defeated, unifying the nation, land, everything. Boom, it's going back. Okay, everything's good. He's rolling. 11 of 2 Samuel. Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab, his big-time general, and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. Now catch this. But David stayed at Jerusalem. And you've got to stop here for a minute. And you've got to ask some questions. Uh, the, the questions would be, uh, Why? This is the time when kings go to battle. Well, here's a guy that's never been defeated in battle. Here's a guy that has the hand of God all over him, and it's time to go out to battle, and it's time to go out to war. And what does David do? He doesn't go out. It's a season opener, and, and he's staying home with the remote. What's, what's going on here? And this guy's a player. Uh, the scriptures really don't tell us what was going on. But he should have been active here. He, he should have been involved. He should have been, now he's the king. He should have been leading. He should have been initiating. He should have been leading the charge. But he's not. All the guys are out. They're all suited up. And what's he doing? He stayed at Jerusalem. Again, the specific reason is not given to us. So we've got to surmise some things. We, we, we know as we look at David's life that David here was, um, uh, was somewhere around what we'd call early midlife. Um, wasn't real young, wasn't real old, kind of midlife. But on the early side of midlife, um, so I got, a, I got a question I want to ask. In fact, I want to ask four questions here tonight. And the first question would be this. He didn't go out to battle. Why not? It's a big question. Um, let me quote Martin Lloyd-Jones here. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, This is what we may call the danger of the middle period. It is something which is true, not only in the Christian life as such, it is true of the whole of life. It is the problem of middle life, and if you like, of middle age. It is something which is evident on all hands. It is something we all have to face sooner or later as we grow older. There are stages of life. How, do you, how many of you guys consider yourself in midlife? I'm just curious. Okay? All right. Now, there are different ways of knowing you're in midlife. Uh, one of them is, is that no one calls you young man anymore. You can put that one away. Because it's very evident to everyone that you are not a young man. Uh, I spoke for Tony Evans a couple weeks ago, and uh, they've got big screens like we've got somewhere. Don't they have big screens here somewhere? Somewhere. There's a big screen, but they got them hanging around. And Tony was gone. He was doing something. And, and the guy up there, he's introducing me, and, and, so I, and I just happened to look up, and they had a headshot of me on this massive, two massive screens. And, and I looked up, and I saw me, and, and got slightly nauseous. <laughs> and I have to tell you, I looked and I thought, gosh, what the heck happened to me? I mean, I really did. I thought, I mean, I, I said, I'm old. I just look bad. I'll give myself about three weeks to live. I just looked, I really looked, I mean, I looked bad. And the next day I was calling plastic surgeons and, you know, just checking it out. I haven't made any decisions yet, but I'm kind of after that tight look, you know, that, that grimace look. Hey, if you're in midlife, you know if you're in midlife. Now, here's the thing. Here's something that's really interesting. I was doing some research on this. Uh, I have a book in my library called The Seasons of a Man's Life, and it is the culmination of a study that was done at Yale University 
by a guy named Daniel Levinson about 30 years ago. And it was the first major study. It's the study from which the whole concept of midlife crisis it came from that study. And uh, the first definitive study of men in the, the different uh, phases that men go through, they were the first ones to identify those phases. Um, uh, a very fascinating book. But what's happened is that in a generation, that study that was done 30-some years ago, <clears throat> there are new studies out that basically will tell you this. Um, say 40 years ago, all right, 40 years ago, when a guy was 50, no, let me back up, 40 years ago, what a guy would deal with and sort with at 40 has been bumped up. In other words, here's, here's what I'm trying to say, and I'm not saying it real well. Things have changed. People are waiting longer to get married. People are waiting longer to have kids. In a nutshell, one writer said, 50 is the new 40. I read one account of a, a, Jew, a Jewish retirement home, and they said 40 years ago, we had people in their 40s bringing in their mothers and fathers in their 60s. Now we have people in their 60s bringing in their mothers and fathers in their 80s and 90s. Everything's shifted. Everything's changed. People are more aware of their health, they're taking better care of themselves. You, you, you see that. So when you define midlife, oh, you know what? If you're in it, you know you're in it. And if you don't know you're in it, ask your friends. They'll tell you. If you're buying real gain by the barrel, you're in it. If you traded in your Chevy pickup for a Mazda Miata, and you can't even get in it, You're in midlife. Lloyd-Jones has some observations about midlife. He says, if you read the biographies of the most successful men the world has ever known in any particular branch, you will find that they have all agreed in saying that the level or plateau was the most difficult period of their lives. When we plateau, it's tough on a man. Uh, he describes it. Nothing seems to be happening. There does not seem to be any change or advance or development. Now, this may be true of us individually. It may be true of our work. It may be true of our church. It may be true of a whole collection of people. It may be true of a country or of society. But people can plateau, and when you plateau, you get into a maintenance mode. I remember reading a, a history one time of America and, and the development of the railroads and the threat that happened to the railroads when cars and trucks began to proliferate. Everything began to change. And the railroads viewed themselves as railroad companies instead of transportation companies. And they went through about a 20-year cycle of demise until new leadership came in and said, wait a minute, we're not a railroad company, we're a transportation company. And it took them a long time. You remember the first time you ever saw a, a railroad flatbed with a, um, a trailer, a tractor, yeah, not a tractor trailer, the trailer on top of it. I remember the first time, I thought, what the heck is that? There's a 40-foot trailer. That's supposed to be on the back of a, of a semi. What's it doing on that road? Well, somebody got with it. Somebody got smart. But for a long time, the railroads plateaued. Well, that can happen to us. Boy, Joan goes on and he said, thus frequently there comes a point at which development and advancement seem to have come to an end, and we are in some kind of doldrums when it is difficult to know whether the work is moving at all, either backwards or forwards. All seems to be at a standstill, and nothing seems to be taking place. That happens in life. It doesn't just happen at, at midlife. It can happen at different times in your life. But when it happens, none of us like it. Now, I'm suspecting here with David that he's dealing with something like this. I can't prove it. I'm not going to die for it. But he's somewhere around midlife, and, and the boys are going out, and he's staying home. we got to watch our leisure time. It's good to be active. It's good to be productive. We were made to be productive. We were made to contribute. 
we live in this culture that is ramming this retirement thing down everybody's throat. You got to hurry up and retire. You got to hurry. Well, wait a minute. What if you like what you do? What if you enjoy what you do? Why would there be mandatory retirement when you're 60 years old? Especially, you're just getting good at what you like. You've got all those years of experience. Now, let, let's, let's, let's grant this, that at certain points in life, we lose a step. You remember when you played basketball and maybe you'd go down you know, at the gym and you'd play with guys and you're 28, you're 29, 30, and one day it hits you. You know what? I've lost a step. You can still play. You can still score. You can still, but you lost a step. You don't want anybody to know it, but you lost a step. That happens at different points in life. So if you love what you do, why not keep doing it? Now, you may not be as intense and put in, you know, the amount of hours, but this retired thing where you just kick back, and you've, you've read the studies, you know that guys that just flat quit and stop and play golf and garden and do all that stuff that doesn't mean anything, those guys tend to keel over quicker because they're not doing anything. Now, there's a point where we need some rest and we need some recreation. We're not... But, you know, some of these guys, they check out, they buy a Winnebago, and they take laps around America. That's all they do. There's got to be more to life than that. I mean, how many laps are you going to take? How many, time can you go to, how many times can you go to Yellowstone? How many times can you wait for Old Faithful to, to do that thing? You've seen it once, you've seen it. You've got to be productive. But now there's a balance. So we need some downtime. But here's, in the spiritual life, we've got to watch ourselves when we've got leisure, if you travel and you're on a business trip, when you're in meetings all day from 7 in the morning till 7 at night, till 7 till 9, you come in, I mean, from 7 to 9, you're busy. You're with people, you're doing this, you're working, you've got meetings, you're, you know, reports and all that. But when you come back to your hotel room and you shut the door and you're exhausted, you know what happens? Your defenses go down. And now all you do want to do is just relax. That's leisure time. Well, you better be careful. Because that's when the enemy is going to try to attack us. Is that not true? No, you know it. You're susceptible. You're vulnerable. So David should have been out with the boys leading him in battle. He's back in Jerusalem. Maybe he was, maybe he'd, gosh, maybe he'd achieved all his goals. Maybe he'd achieved all his objectives. Who else is he going to beat? I mean, he took Goliath. He's been taking all the nations. I don't know. But we've got to be careful. We can never drop our guard. Satan never drops his attack in, in any area. So you've been married 45 years, guess what? He still wants to get, to get between you and your wife. It doesn't matter how long. He, he never quits. So, so we, we always got to have our defenses up. Um, now what's going to happen here is David as we all know, is going to get involved with this woman Bathsheba. Now, as you look at this and you analyze what's going on with David, I see a series of events that are contrary to a man who has a heart for God. Flip over to Ephesians with me, to Ephesians chapter 5. Well, I want to look at this verse here. Because it's going to reflect, I think, on what happened to David before we actually get into the story. And then what can happen to us. Uh, chapter 5, verse 1 of Ephesians says, Therefore be imitators of God. Don't you, don't you enjoy watching these guys that can do impressions? I mean, that are really good. They used to, you know, Rich Little is good. There used to be a guy that just... What was that guy? Vaughn Meter. All he did was Kennedy. And, uh, man, he had him down. Uh, there, there are different guys. There was a guy named Frank Gorshin. He, he was unbelievable. He, he, I mean, he, he just had it. He had the voice, the intonation, everything. Uh, there, now, what about, therefore, be, we're to be imitators. We're to be mimics of God and how we live. Now, remember, guys, the umbrella verse to this study is 1 Timothy 4.16. Where Paul said to Timothy, pay close attention to your life and to your doctrine. Pay close attention to how you live, to how you think, to how you behave. 
and pay close attention to what you believe. Timothy was a pastor. So Timothy, pay close attention to what you teach, but pay close attention to your life. That's our umbrella verse. What we're going to see here is where David didn't pay close attention to his life. And we're going to get a glimpse here of what happened to him in 5.1. Therefore, be imitators of God. Well, David was a man who was after God's own heart. So he was an imitator of God. But something happened to David. Look down at verse uh, 5. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and and of God. Those who refuse to come to Christ, those who come to... uh, refuse to come to him and, and, and ask forgiveness and receive that forgiveness and submit to him, you know, they're out. They don't want it. They don't want Christ in their life. But he says this. He says, let no one... But see, he's talking to believers, those of us who have received forgiveness. Look at 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Those are the non-Christians. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Now, this is wild. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. All right, here's what happened to David. When you imitate God, you're living in the light. But what we're going to see with David is that David got out of the light and started living in the darkness And he started developing this pattern of secrets. Wrong kind of secrets. Uh, Secret sins. You see, a secret sin has to take place in the dark. And you want to keep it covered up. And David knew better because David's a man of God. Well, God is light. And in him there is no darkness. So when we mimic God, we're walking in light, not in darkness. What happened was that David shifted from light and he shifted to darkness and you can see it by the secrets. Now I'll give you the secrets up front that we're going to see here. Number one, in verse four, you've got the secret of the affair. In verse five, you've got the secret of the pregnancy. In verse six, you've got the secret from her husband. In verse 14, you're going to see the secret instruction to Joab, which is put her husband on the front lines and pull back so he'll be killed. But nobody else knew about that. It was very hush-hush. Then in verse 25, you have the secret rationalization to Joab. And we'll see this in a minute. Joab, don't feel bad about what we did. What happens in battle? Guys get killed. Yeah, but most guys in battle aren't set up to be murdered by their king. Then in 27, you've got the secret deception by marrying Bathsheba and trying to make everything look good and honorable. So you've got secret after secret after secret after secret after secret. I'll give them to you one more time. I know some of you guys are looking at me. Secret of the affair, verse 4. Secret of the pregnancy, verse 5. Secret from Uzziah, her husband, verse 6. Secret instruction to Joab, the general, verse 14. Secret rationalization to Joab, verse 25. Secret deception by marrying Bathsheba, verse 27. Okay? Those are the secrets we're going to see here in a minute. Now, the secrets kind of fit in somewhere under the questions. The first question was, and I'll let you figure out where. Uh, I'm not going to make it real clear. I just wanted to put those secrets in there because they're interposed as we're going to ask these questions. First question is, he didn't go out to battle, why not? Now, let's read a little further, and that'll get us to the second question. So he's not out at battle. He's at home. Verse 2, now when the evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. Uh, If you have a chance to visit Jerusalem, you'll see that the houses in Jerusalem, they still build them the same way they did back in David's day when it comes to the porches. The porches are on the roof. Uh, They just just don't roof them. that's, That's like an extra room. And people have got ping pong tables out there. When you're on a high place in Jerusalem, you can look down all the roofs. And you can see people out there and they got their chairs and somebody's got a hot tub and somebody's got a ping pong table and you know they got plants and someone's got a garden and so they live on top of their on top of the roof. You know that song, Upon the Roof? You remember that song? It no, it doesn't have anything to do with this. I just 
Thought I'd uh, deceive you there. Someone can catch that door back there? That'd be great. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Um, I hate it when elders scream, don't you? Is there an elders man going back there? I don't know what's going on. Okay. All right. Now catch this. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. Now she didn't know. She thought she was discreet. No one was, you know, she's not out there exposing herself. But David had this, he's the king. He's got the big house. He's above everybody else. And so he was able somehow to see her. Uh, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. I love how the scripture puts that. In other words, she was a knockout. This was not some homely woman. This was a nice-looking chick. And David had always had an eye for the ladies. Always. And he sees her, he scopes her out. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of... E-? He goes, who is it? By the way, who's that? You know, and so someone, you know... Runs a computer check real quick. And, and uh, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Okay, now, now we're getting stupid here. Now, the first stupid move was to make the inquiry. Right? But see, David had already made a series of choices in his life prior to this. See, God had said in Deuteronomy 17, 17, that the king of Israel was to have one wife. It's very clear. David had violated that. And I think it's F.B. Meyer has a great quote in his book on David that because David continued to take wives and concubines, he had, alwhere, he had already predisposed himself to give in to temptation in the evil hour. When you make a series of series and series of bad choices, and you hedge, and you hedge, and you hedge, all you're doing is setting yourself up for a big-time fall. And he would excuse it, he'd excuse it, he would excuse it. So David, David was supposed to be a one-woman kind of man, but David was a many-woman kind of man. He had more than one wife. He clearly violated the Word of God. You know, it's possible to be a polygamist as a Christian man. It is. So you have your wife... I have a, you know, my wife is Mary. But see, it's possible that secretly and quietly I can have another wife, pornography. Uh, I can have another wife when I'm on the road, strip clubs. How would anybody know? You go to some place you never been, how would they know? And you can't catch a flight and you got to stay over and da, da, da. And where are all those strip clubs? A lot of times they're close to an airport. Those guys aren't stupid to run those things. See, if we're not careful, we can turn into polygamists. That's what happened to David. So he'd already predisposed himself long before this occurred. So he sees this gal, he starts, hey, she's married. All right, did that stop him? No, I'll watch this. David sent messengers in verse 4. Uh, and took her, and when she came to him, he lay with her, and when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. All right, now here's my question. Here's my second question. Second question is, he didn't repent the next morning. Why not? So he sees this chick, calls her in, you know, good luck. All right, she comes in, she sleeps with him. The next morning when David got up, now the question is, how do you think he felt? I think the Spirit of God was all over the guy because he was a man who was an imitator of God, who had a heart for God, and he knew in his gut what he had done was wrong. So why didn't he deal with it right then and there? Stop and play this game with me. What if David, as he was under the conviction of the Spirit of God. You say, well, no, this is Old Testament. Well, hey, let me tell you something. God convicted people in the Old Testament. The Spirit of God was around in the Old Testament. It's a different relationship, but the Spirit of God was there. Um, David in the Psalm says, don't, don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. Created me a clean heart when he was in repentance. It took him a while to get to repentance. But you can read about it in Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. What if David had a listened 
to the conviction that came into his life from the Holy Spirit. And you know that's what happened. You think he got up the next morning and said, hey, what's going on? Good to see you, you know? No, he's, you're going to see. He's going to start covering. What if instead of covering, and he secretly has this woman brought to him. What if instead of, of letting it go, he had to dealt with it? What if he had to listen to the Spirit of God and said, you know what? What am I doing? This is nuts. This is horrific. I can't. What if he had a called Nathan and said, Nathan, get over here. And Nathan had to walk in. He said, Nathan, I, I, I'm, I'm just, I can't believe what I've done, but let me tell you what I've done. What if he had stopped it? What if he had nailed it? What if he had dealt with it right then? Well, it was bad, but not as bad as it's going to get. Um, there, there's been a saying that goes along with sin, and one, of the, and one of those sayings is that sin will always take you farther than you wanted to go. If he had dealt with his sin when he was convicted by the Holy Spirit, see, it was a secret. I mean, you know, a few people knew, a few of his guys around him, his, his, his flunkies, his slaves, he said, go get her and bring her in. They knew about it. But they're sworn to secrecy. They're not going to say anything because he, you know, he, can, he can take their lives if he wants to. So this is a secret deal. What if he had a dealt with the secret right then and there? See, here's what happens. We get afraid to deal with secret sin. But if you don't deal with it, it's only going to get worse. It's going to take you farther than you ever wanted to go. So he covers it. Instead of bringing it, he's calling Nathan the prophet and said, Nathan, look, it. I did this. I'm, I'm humiliated. It was wrong. It was sin. He, see, the, what he should have done was take that sin out of the darkness and put it into the light because he's a man of light. He's a man of God. But he's back here in darkness trying to cover the secret sin. And all you're asking for here is more trouble in your life. This is trouble. But he's going to get more trouble than he could imagine. So what did Paul say to Timothy? Pay close attention to your life. He didn't repent. Why not? He's ashamed. He's embarrassed. He's humiliated. Well, nobody can know. Well, you know what? Somebody has to know. James said, confess your sin one to another and pray for one another. There's a point where we pray to God and we ask for forgiveness, but there are certain sins that have to be confessed to somebody else because you're so trapped, you can't get out by yourself. So you confess to a brother, to someone you can trust, who you respect their walk with the Lord. They're not going to condemn you. They're going to listen to you, and then they're going to pray for you, and then they'll walk with you through it. But what the enemy wants to do is isolate a guy. He wants us to keep us from others the, the, the Christian life is not meant to be lived by ourselves. We're to, be, we're, we're, we're to live with others. There are to be others in our lives. When one falls, the other lifts them up. But we keep moving. So David didn't do that, okay? Why not? Well, we've examined it. Let's see what happens next. Verse 5, the, the woman conceived. Now we got a problem. Okay. Just a one-night stand. Okay, now we got a problem because she's pregnant. She sends him a message, I'm pregnant. Okay, now here's the next secret. Here's, here's the next, now, see, now he's further down the road. Now, David's not a dumb guy. David didn't get to be the king by being, you know, foolish. And David, he, you know, he's thinking. He's, he's, all right, what do we, okay. So what, look, look, immediately what he says. David said, David sent to Joab, who is the general. He says, send me Uriah the Hittite. We'll take care of this. Let's get Uriah back here. So Joab sent Uriah to David. Let's get her husband back here. Verse 8, And David said to Uriah, uh, actually in 7, when Uriah came to him, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and the people in the state of the war. So tell me, uh, Uriah, how's it going out there in the battle? How's Joab doing? How, what, what are things looking like? And how are the men? And how are, uh, it's all a sham because he's got a secret that he's got to conceal. Here's the guy, and he's pretending to have this guy's welfare. 
foremost in it. He didn't give a rip about this guy's welfare. He cares about his welfare. This is the man after God's own heart. After they had the conversation, eight, David said to Uriah, well, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out from the king's house and a present from the king was sent out after him. That's really something. David sends him a present as he's going to go back to his house. And David said, I got this figured out. It hadn't been this long. This guy's going to come back. He's going to sleep with his wife. And I got my bases covered. And the secret is safe. No one will ever know. But he had a little problem here he hadn't anticipated because Uriah had something that David was missing at this point in his life. Uriah had something called character. Look at verse 9. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. And when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. <clears throat> Drafts. Now we got a big problem. You see... Guys, you see how this works? You see how sin will take you farther than you wanted to go? Here's the other thing about sin. Sin will keep you longer than you wanted to stay. How long did David want to stay in sin? One night. But he's not in this. This is not a one-night deal. This is turning into a this is turning into a very complex situation. She's pregnant. All right, let's get him back here. Let's work it all out. Get, get the... I had a guy tell me recently who is a Christian and who is involved in politics. I had him tell me that he was talking to the governor of his state. And this governor is, quote, unquote, Christian guy, you know, and this governor looked at this guy and said, your problem is you're too pure. You're just too pure. Because this guy wouldn't give on an issue. Wouldn't give. Because it, it, it was a moral and biblical issue, and he wouldn't give. You know what your problem is, man? You're too pure. Uh, Uriah was a little too pure for David. But David's not giving up. Verse 12. Then David said to Uriah, Well, hey, listen, stay here today also, and tomorrow I will let you go. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now David called him, and he ate, and he drank with him, and he made him drunk. In the evening he went out to lie in his bed with his Lord's servants and did not go down to his house. Draft. You know, hey, you try this wine. Oh, this is really good. Napa Valley, try this one. And then we got this one, you know, this Bordeaux from France or Bordeaux or whatever you call this stuff. Try this. It'll be good for you. Little Jack Daniels, he's just slopping it down, this guy. Uh-uh, uh-uh, no change, okay? So now we got a problem. See, here's my third question. He didn't come clean when she was pregnant. Why not? Well, sin will take you farther than you wanted to go. But see, now, now we're at number four, and the question on number four is, he didn't stop when Uriah behaved with honor, why not? See, here's this, uh, Uriah's an honorable man. Hey, my guys are out there. They can't sleep with their wives. Why would I sleep with my wife? See, another principle about sin is this. Sin will cost you more than you wanted to pay. Let me summarize those. Sin will take you farther than you wanted to go. Sin will keep you longer than you wanted to stay. He just wanted the one-night stand. Now this is turning into a big deal. And sin's going to cost you more than you wanted to pay. See, now what is, now what's, now what, what is it going to cost David? Now he's got to get the guy killed. Now catch this. He tried to get him drunk, tried to... Uh, all right, so look, look, look how... The, you see this slippery slide? What if he had it dealt with it? What if he had it brought it out in the dark? And see, we don't ever want to do this. But guys, at some point in the Christian life, here's what has to happen. We have to get brutally honest. You have to. Do I want to follow Christ? Do I want to be a man of God? Or do I want to be a sham? Do I want to just be some guy looking good? 
But in your heart of hearts, in your gut of guts, do you want to be a man of God? This is what separates the men from the boys when it comes to sin. Because we all deal with sin, but at some point, you got to bring the sin out of the darkness into the light. you got to be honest with somebody about what you're dealing with, or you're not going to grow, and you're not going to mature, and your life is not going to be used in the way that it could be used by God. What the enemy wants to do is he wants to neutralize us. He wants to hang hang us up. He wants us to put a noose around our own necks. Doesn't matter how gifted you are, doesn't matter how articulate you are, doesn't matter how good you are with people. In fact, the more gifted you are with people and the more you can schmooze people, the more vulnerable you really are. The best thing that can happen to any of us is to get caught as a liar early. Did you know that? Some of you guys know my brother Jeff. I'm going to tell you, he's my youngest brother. I'm going to tell you, that little sucker was a liar. And he was good at it. And people, you know, and, and you know, I'm, I'll never forget this. There was a point, and Jeff was probably, Jeff was probably in, oh, I don't know, freshman, sophomore in high school. And, and he, I mean, he just got it. He was just lying all that. He'd make stuff. He didn't even need to make it up. He was just lying right and left. And I'll tell you what happened. I'll tell you what my dad did. It was really interesting. I'll never forget this. Uh, and, you know, my dad disciplined us and spanked us and all that stuff. And, you know. But Jeff just kept going. And, and, and my dad, looking back on this, I, I know that my dad, he said, here's this kid with all this potential and all this ability. And you know what? This has got to come to an end. And so here's what my dad, I'll never forget this. One night we were at dinner. And... Um, and my dad, uh, Jeff said something to my dad, and my dad didn't respond to him. And, and Jeff said, hey, Dad. And my dad wouldn't respond to him. And Jeff said, Dad. It was like something like pass the peas or something. And, and, and Dad wouldn't say anything to him. And, and Jeff said, what, what are you doing? And he said, he said, Jeff, I can't talk with you. He said, what do you mean you can't talk with me? He said, because I never know when you're telling me the truth. He said, it's gotten to a point, Jeff, if your lips are moving, I think you're lying. So I'm not going to have any more conversation with you. That was Jeff, 13 or 14. And Jeff was crushed. He was crushed. And the next day, my dad wouldn't talk to him. And at dinner, my dad wouldn't talk to him. And that night, my dad wouldn't talk. He's talking to me. He's talking to Mike. He wouldn't talk to Jeff. And Jeff's starting to, I mean, that's really through him. And, and my dad wasn't mean to him, or he wasn't. My dad just wouldn't talk to him. As I recall, this went on three days, maybe four, and then Jeff broke. And he went to my dad, and he was in tears. He's a little, you know, he's a 12, 13 year old kid, whatever. And he said, Dad, you got to talk. And finally, and, and, and Jeff's just, and he's just bawling. And my dad had a, and basically said, Jeff, listen, do you see how important it is? See, you can't have a family without trust. And see, lying kills trust. If we don't tell each other the truth, there's no reason to have a conversation. If I can't believe what you're telling me, we don't have much of a family. You know, I I, I can't do that with mom. You can't do that with your wife when you get married. You you can't, Jeff, you can't. and And you know what? It made a real impression. And it made an impression on me, and it made an impression on Mike. Um, you know, something that's interesting about adultery, David's in adultery. I have never seen a case where anyone has gotten into an adulterous situation where there wasn't a trail of lying and deceit. It can't happen. If, if you're going to be an adulterer, if you're going to be involved in sexual sin, you've got to be a liar to cover your bases you, you, it, because you're trying to pull it off in secret. So you've got to be lying right and left. And the problem, and, and see, here's the lunacy of this. Here's the, here's the foolishness of this is that um, when you get to this deal with Uriah, uh, I ask the question, 
Uh, he didn't stop when Uriah behaved with honor. Why not? Well, because it had gone so far. Here's the thing. He thought, David thought he could permanently pull off the deception, and that was stupid. It was more than stupid. It was insane. The scriptures tell us you can be sure your sin will what? Will find you out. But he just keeps going. And the whole time the Spirit of God's talking to him. Now he's going to become a murderer. So 14, in the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Here, Uriah, hand this to Joab. It's your death sentence. But he didn't say it. Uh, the letter, what does it say? Put Uriah in the front lines and pull back so he'll be killed. And that's what happened. You look at verse 24. The report comes to David. Uh, the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. Done deal. Okay, I got it covered, David thinks. Then David's got to send a note back to Joab the general saying, uh, in 25, then David said to the messenger, thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this thing displease you. Uh, in the New American Standard, the margin says, do not let this thing be evil in your sight. I want to keep it a secret. And, and you know, sometimes things just have to be done, Joab. It's hard to be a leader, and sometimes things have to be done that not everyone can understand. See, he's trying to get Joab to rationalize right with him. Well, your sin will find you out. She's pregnant. Um, her husband's dead. Look at 26. Look at the deception here. Look at the deception. Now, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. When the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. Now it's legitimized. And she bore him a son, but the thing which David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Yeah, but not to everybody else. See, this was an honorable thing. You're, you're right, one of the great men, you know, oh, now David's bringing her in. Okay, oh, great. Okay, all right. Then you get the 12. Turn the page. At least in my Bible, you turn the page. Chapter 12. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he's going to tell David something that occurred. There were two men in one city, and one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb which he bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat out of his, eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. In other words, he's got to have a banquet for this guy, and he doesn't want to kill one of his own lambs. He's got all kinds of lambs. This guy's rich. This guy's wealthy. He's got lambs everywhere. So what does he do? Well, he took the poor man's ewe lamb, the guy's one lamb, and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Now watch David here. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die, and he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan then said to David, You are the man. The gig's up. And it never had to get this far, did it? See, guys, there's a principle here. And here's the principle. Now, again, look, we want to watch our lives. We've all done stupid. We want to stop doing stupid. All right, so here's a principle. Secret sins will receive open rebukes. If you keep that as a believer, who are you supposed to imitate? You're supposed to imitate God, who is light. You're supposed to be light. But if you as a believer get into this secret darkness stuff, and when the Spirit of God convicts you, and you refuse to bring it into the light and confess it and take it to the Lord and receive his forgiveness and, and, and hate it, and despise it, not excuse it. You take this before the Lord, and in brokenness you come to him, he'll forgive you. But when you don't, here's, here's what we got. This is what's stupid. Your sin will find you out. 
Secret sins will receive open rebukes. That's precisely what happened here with Nathan. You're the man. There are two consequences of keeping sin secret in the life of a believer. Okay? Here's number one. Secret sins will result in open shame. If you refuse to deal with secret sin before the Lord, he's your father. He's not going to... He's your father. He's not going to let you get away with this. So secret sin, you're trying to hide it, you're trying to keep it in the darkness, listen, expose it, bring it to the light, confess it, deal with it. Now, before you get so far down the road, you don't, your, your, your life's a wreck. Secret sins result in open shame. That's what happened to David. Here's number two. Secret sins result in open discipline. That's what happened right here. Why would we go? Why? Well, the enemy hey, you know, I'm smarter. I can, figure, I can pull this off. You can't pull it off. So why not deal with it? All right, so. What if something like this has happened in your life? Uh, Robert Morgan's written a little book called The Red Sea Rules. Good little work. Here's a little chapter called, What If It's My Fault? Here's what he says. What if we have landed in this tough spot, not because the Lord directly led us there, but because we followed our own noses? We sometimes cause our own pain. Our problems often result from sheer selfishness or stupidity. What then? Serious and sincere repentance roots us back into God's will. Confession is like a shortcut from the wayward path back to the straight and narrow road of Christ. When we genuinely repent of our sins, they are cast as far from us as east as west. From west, our hearts are cleansed, our fellowship with God is restored. Certain consequences may linger, but the Lord will somehow use even those for our good. Healing will still be needed, but the great physician will apply the salve. He weaves everything together to advance his purposes. God's forgiveness allows self-forgiveness. Have you ever read what Joseph told his brothers long after they had sold him into slavery? Essentially, Joseph said, stop beating yourselves up over this. Joseph declared in Genesis 45 and in Genesis 50, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lies that God sent me ahead of you. Don't be afraid. Am I not in the place of God? Then he goes on and says this, self-forgiveness comes when we realize that if God has forgiven us, we needn't remain angry with ourselves, needn't hate ourselves any longer. God will even use the evil for good. How does God do this? We don't know, but he's God. According to Romans 8.28, all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Sidlow Baxter once wrote, there is a compassionate adaptability about God's will for us. Because we have not been in God's special will for us from the beginning, there is no reason why we should not get into it now. He can take it up from right here and get it right. David could have stopped this process at square one. I don't know where you are. You don't know what's going on in my life. The Spirit of God knows. You sin, deal with it. Take it to Christ. Receive forgiveness. Are you in sin that's unchecked? Let me give you a word. Stop it now. Stop it. Quit living a lie. Bow before Christ. Don't be stupid. Let's pray. This is a warning for the ages, Lord Jesus, that you have given to all of us. We all have the same temptations. We all have the same passions as David. We go through times when life's not advancing, when we are uh, frustrated, when we feel like we're maintaining 
We're not out doing what we should be doing. We get caught in our leisure time. Um, I, I pray for those who are here, Lord, that find themselves, as they've heard this tonight, they see themselves somewhere in this process. I pray that you will give them the courage by the power of the Holy Spirit to step up and deal with this honestly before you and stop the slide right here and repent and receive your forgiveness and your mercy now instead of six months or two years or three years down the road. Now, now we pray in Jesus' name, amen.